Man, where to start? With the Bible, I guess. Uh, God wrote us a book, um, but he didn't just write one book. He wrote 66 of them across different time periods through different people and especially different genres. And that's baffling to, to me because, I, I mean, imagine, think about if J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, the leader in the top fantasy book, also was known for being the best writer in the mystery genre. Or think if H.P. Lovecraft wasn't just known for his dystopian monster books, but was also known for being the leader in romance novels. Um, so God in his goodness has not just written us in just one form. He's written to us in narrative and in historical tales and letters and prophecy and to the genre that we'll be reading tonight, which is poetry. But not even just poetry, but wisdom poetry. You see, Psalm 73 picks up on some of the different themes that we see in the wisdom literature. Um, and it's almost as if the psalmist, as he's reading the psalm, as he's telling us the story, it's almost as if he's our, our great-great-grandfather and he's calling us into his room and he's saying, listen, I've got a, a story for you, a story for you that has been helpful for me in times of trouble, one that has, been, has gotten me through difficult times and one that I'd like to share with you. Uh, and so this is a rich, rich psalm that we'll be looking at tonight. And it's also the first psalm and book three of the Psalter. Um, if you didn't know this, the Psalter is broken up into five different books, each with different themes associated with them. And, and book three really talks about the king's crisis over God's promises. And so what we see in, in Psalm 73 is, is really just a personal crisis that is being experienced by the psalmist. And so as we, as we turn to the psalm, we, we, we must realize that this isn't just any any psalm. It's not just any story. It's a, it's a story about a man who almost fell, and he's going to tell us about it so that we don't have to. He's going to tell us a story so that when we fall, we have a place to turn to. He's going to tell us a story so that when we face this problem and others bring this problem before us, that we'll have an argument to bring against them. And so with that, um, let's read Psalm 73, which reads this. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the, of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches." All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. 
how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the many many books of the Bible that you've written for us, especially the poetry and wisdom that you will be speaking to us tonight. Help us to see how this crisis isn't really a crisis. Help us to see how you are able to to face any challenge that we may bring against you and how you comfort us even in our distress. Help us to remember that you are good especially in the context of Psalm 73. Be with us now, and be with me as I teach this passage. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Psalm 73 takes place in three acts. Act 1, verses 1 through 12, the crisis. Act 2, verses 13 through 17, the psalmist's response. And then Act 3, verses 18 through 28, the resolution of the crisis. And so like any good story, we just start at the beginning. Our story opens in verse 1 with an enthusiastic declaration that truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The first verse states that God is good to his covenant people. Now before we go too far, that doesn't mean that God isn't good to everyone else. The Bible teaches that God makes the sunrise on the evil and the good the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So God is good to all, but what the psalmist is talking about is a special type of goodness. A goodness that uses the word truly. Truly, God is good to Israel. It's a a type of goodness that is special to the covenant people of God. But it's not just to the covenant people. It's to the people who are pure in heart. You see, it isn't just that they were part of the covenant people. It isn't just that they belonged to the nation of Israel. You can belong to the nation of Israel and not be a part of the true Israel. It would be the equivalent of people who just come to church on a Sunday. They sit through the service. They, maybe they read scripture, but they don't actually live out what scripture teaches. That's not what he's saying. He's not blessing those who just belong to the nation. He blesses those who belong to the nation and are pure in heart. To be pure in heart means that we are seeking after God. We are dedicated to his purposes. It's not just the person who does good things, who spends all their time serving at a homeless shelter, who maybe takes a lot of phone calls from their friends in times of distress. No, we're talking about the heart posture. We're talking about inwardly knowing who God is and seeking after him. Because we can still do all those good things and be polluted in our heart. 
we have to realize that in the Bible, the heart is the center of our desires and our affections. It's the fountain of our actions and our beings. Reflecting on the words of Martin Luther, Dustin Bend states that the pure in heart are those who inwardly sought to obey God's word, grow in their relationship with Christ, and extend that heart to others. God is not in the business of, of blessing those who just happen to, ho- to know his name or, or those who just do an abundance of good deeds, but to those who are pure in heart, those who live rightly, those who pursue Christ and then live out his purposes. God truly does bless Israel, those who are pure in heart. He blesses those who pursue him in all that they do. God is good to the righteous. Now, so far, this is just good news, right? It's good that he blesses those who pursue him in all that they do. Well, conceptually, this is good news, but experientially, is this good news? In other words, we declare, that we declare this, but do we really see that played out in our lives? And this is what the psalmist struggles with. Now, this is a little spoiler alert, but in the last verse of the psalm, he will declare that God is good, that it's good to be near God. He will, in a way, reaffirm this first statement, but not without going through the struggle of trying to figure out how God can be good even when we don't experience it. And that's what I think the psalmist is trying to teach us in this poetic story, that God is still good even when we don't think that he is. Reflecting on this truth that God is good to his covenant people, the psalmist begins to recall a time when he had almost slipped, a time when he was tempted to abandon the righteous life that he was pursuing. And why did he almost fall off the path of obedient life? Because he was envious when he saw the arrogant, when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now what prosperity is he talking about? How are they prosperous? And that, he explains in verses 4 through 12. You see, the wicked have no pain until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. These aren't the, these aren't the people who are in trouble like others are. This is not the man who works two jobs so that he can feed his family. This is not the man who struggles with a rare disease. Their bodies are sleek. They're, they're well-groomed. They go to bed with their bellies full. These are the people who are popular and who don't know what it's like to struggle with loneliness. These are the people who don't know what it's like to be poor and are, are always receiving hand-me-downs. They're free from all the basic worries that most people experience in life. But that's not all. The wicked act in, in a way that their pride is seen as their necklace and violence as a garment. This is the kid in class who never misses the chance to correct their teacher. This is the football player who takes every opportunity to remind you of how many games he's won. This is the singer who sings every word that comes out of their mouths just so that they, they can show you how good they are at singing. This is the man who gets mad at you and at anything you say and lashes out at anything that, you, that he could possibly conceive as being an insult. You see, they're so prideful that you can see it in how they walk and the way they smile and what they own and buy. Their violence and pride takes on a physical form so that we can see it in everything that they do. The wicked have hearts that overflow with follies as, as their eyes bulge out, eager to indulge in whatever they, they see. Their lips are covered in hate and malice as they use their words to threaten and oppress all they come across for their own personal gain. They even set their mouths against heaven and strut their tongues throughout the earth as if everything in it was made for them. And if that wasn't bad enough, they speak so well, they speak so convincingly, 
that the people turn and listen to their words and find no fault in them. In the CSB translation of verse 10, it says that the people drink in their overflowing words. They're so prominent and they gush forth so much that others just believe them. They are so prosperous in life that they mock God saying, how can he know? How can he know the prideful words that I'm saying? How can he know how I abuse my authority in my home or in my office? How can he know that I desire everything in my sight and then use whatever means necessary to get it? How can he know? They have status, power, money, and anything else that you can think of. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. I think if we were to take a modern-day equivalent of what this looks like, it's kind of like that high school jock. You know, the guy who's so puffed up and believes in himself that everything that comes out of his mouth is pure gold. Nothing he can say is wrong. <laughs> he, he builds himself up and makes everybody think that he's on top of the world and that nothing he can, he can do is wrong. This is, this is the big problem. The wicked, the picture of the wicked in this psalm is a picture of a man who thinks of himself as God and does whatever they please and somehow prosper in the midst of it. Do we see why this is such a crisis? The wicked prosper because they can do whatever they want. They can lie, steal, lust after murder, do anything and everything that their hearts desire with none of the consequences. And not only do they have none of the consequences, but they are actually rewarded with an easy life, a life in which they enjoy many benefits. We have to think about this from the psalmist's perspective. The wicked may mock God and say, how does he know? But the psalmist knows that God knows and sees these things. The psalmist knows that God hears and sees everything that the wicked are doing. But that raises the question. If God sees and knows all of these things, then why does he allow the wicked to prosper? Didn't he just tell us, didn't we just sing in Psalm 1 that the way of the wicked will perish? Didn't he say that the the righteous will be planted by streams of water? Didn't he say that in all that we set out to do, we would prosper? And this is one in which the crisis spirals into many other things. If God blesses the wicked and the righteous are not so, doesn't that make God a liar? And if God has broken this promise, what other promises will he break? This is even bigger ramifications as the world can see this and say, Look at how their God has failed. Look, they claimed that if they followed this God and pursued him, then they would be blessed. But alas, they are no better than anyone else. And so our first act closes with this immense problem. Our second act, verses 13 through 17, captures the psalmist's response to this crisis. He laments, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And I think many times as Christians, we feel this. We go to great lengths to seek God in all that we do, to care for our spouses, our brothers and sisters, to care for our church well. 
We sacrifice our free time to share the gospel with others. We sacrifice our money so that the family of God is taken care of and the mission of God goes forth. We sacrifice our comfort, our reputation, and in some some instances, even our careers by continuing to step out into a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to our beliefs. And what's the point? What's the point of keeping our hands clean when we reap none of the benefits? What's the point of holding my tongue when I'm angry if no one ever notices it? What's the point of humbling myself in a world where everyone just exalts themselves and reaps the rewards of it? What's the point of fleeting the false gods of money and power when those who seek them seem to have a great life? It's like the psalmist is saying, what's the point of working a nine to five if I'm not gonna get paid? And it would be bad enough if the wicked weren't punished. It would be bad enough if the wicked were just prosperous in their sins. It would be bad enough if the righteous weren't rewarded for their obedience. But to make matters worse, the righteous are being stricken. Verse 14 says, for all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see, it isn't just the prosperity, posterity of the wicked that challenges the psalmist. It's also the disadvantage of the righteous. Christianity costs us something, and it seems that we have happened to get a bad deal, or at least that's what the psalmist argues. The psalmist sees all of this and is troubled in heart, and this is where he almost falls. He almost says these things out loud. And let's get the record straight. It's wrong to think these things about God because God gives us air to breathe. He gives us the sun that shines on us. He gives us rain that allows crops to grow, giving us food. He has provided us with jobs so that we can make money and take care of our families. The gift of life itself is reason enough for us to say that God is good to us. Now, some would disagree with that statement. Some people would argue that in our society, there are people who have lives that are so bad that it's not worth living. That it'd actually be better to be dead and not alive at all. That life isn't a gift, it's a curse. I had a friend who thought like this once. Uh, He explained to me how little friends he had, how little he enjoyed school, but that he'd do it anyway for the degree and the job that came afterwards and the money. But even in in light of all of that, he hated waking up in the morning and he found no meaning in life. And he told me this. He told me how everything for him was a miserable existence. And as he looked on my face, I was thinking, uh... Do you actually believe that? <laughs> is that is that really true? Because if you actually think, because th- there's only one logical conclusion to where that ends, and and he looked at my face and he and he he anticipated what I was going to ask him, and he and he said, "Don't worry, I'm not going to kill myself. If this is the only life I have, even if it's bad, it's better than nothing." And I think deep down we all know that. Um, I think we all know that even a miserable life is a gift because it's, to live is better than to not live at all. And I think it's wrong to think that life isn't a gift, especially after all God has done for us. And even in that moment, my friend was able to recognize that. You see, this, this sort of testimony, this sort of crisis, that, this is the sort of testimony and crisis that pushes people away from God. Believing these types of things is what instills distrust, distrust, distrust in God. This is the type of people, or this is the type of testimony 
that people use against Christianity. This isn't just a personal crisis about the, the state of the psalmist's life, but this, can, this goes to the very core of who God is and the promises that he, he, he states. And it's an opportunity to become a crisis for the people of God and for the enemies of God. This is something that people can use against us, something that people can say, once again, didn't God say and didn't God not deliver? But I think this is a moment in which we learn what to do with our doubts. And this is a moment in which the psalmist shows us what we should do with our doubts. You see, he says that it's a wearisome task. It weighed on him. It was hard. It wasn't easy to understand. But in that moment, where does he turn? He doesn't just wipe his hands and believe his doubts. He doesn't just turn to the latest academic who disproves the Bible. No, he turns to the sanctuary of God. You see, I think the psalmist is trying to tell us if we're struggling to believe something about God, then we should turn to God himself. We should have that type of attitude like the man in Mark 9 who said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so even from this moment, even in this moment where we see the psalmist who has his doubts, who has a crisis, we see that he still has faith. He still trusts God and doesn't give in to his doubts. So how does he solve his problem? What does God reveal to him? Well, that's where the third act comes into play, verses 18 through 28. This is the resolution to the crisis. It's the answer to our lingering question, question of how the wicked can be so prosperous and the righteous not be so. The first way this crisis is resolved is by understanding what the fruit of the wicked really is. Sure, you can have the relief of getting angry and cussing someone out now in this life. But the Lord says that everyone will give an account for every idle word that is spoken. Sure, their tongues may strut through the earth, but one day they will stand before the one who really owns the earth. Sure, they may boast about all of their success, but one day they will be embarrassed and ashamed of how they spent their time on the earth. This psalm tells what awaits the wicked. In verse 18, he says, Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you ruse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. The CSV translate that last verse as he despises their very image. Notice the word truly appearing again. Truly you set them in slippery places. Just as truly as God is good in the beginning of the psalm, truly he is just. The wicked will not get a free pass for their actions. God will punish anyone who does not obey his word and live by his commandments. And, and we think that this isn't fair, but we have to remember that God has made life. He's written these rules not so that we may be restricted, be restricted, but so we may have fullness of life. 
And as the one who designed life, he knows best how it ought to be lived. As the one who made the car, he decides what goes in the instruction manual. When we go against God, the one who made us, we make ourselves enemies of God by making ourselves our own kings. We don't, destroy, we don't deserve anything but to be destroyed. You see, as the, the wicked carry out through life, the only thing that they're st- storing up for themselves is destruction. And in light of the wicked's final destination, the psalmist repents. He says that when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was a beast towards you. When we realize how wrongly we've treated God, when we realize the goodness in which God has given to us, we can't help but respond in repentance and realizing that we act like beasts towards God. We act like we cannot think or remember God's faithfulness. We are so full of of emotions that we don't remember the days when God was good to us. We should repent when we fail to remember God's faithfulness in our lives. But we're lucky that God doesn't just leave us with this answer. He doesn't treat us like he treats Job, telling Job that he has no authority to speak to God in that way. You see, in this psalm, God provides a real answer to those who struggle with God's goodness in our lives. He comes down gently And through the psalmist, he reminds us what it means that God is good to his people. Often people say that God can't be good as they look at the world around us. But that's because they wrongly, wrongfully understand what God's goodness actually looks like. You see, we make the mistake of equating God's goodness with the prosperity of the world. But God says otherwise. And he shows us that in verses 23 through 28. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your wondrous works. We are continually with God. He holds our right hands. I mean, think about all the times that God is with his people. We can think back to Moses. Uh, You remember that time when God talked to him through the burning bush and tells him to go back to Egypt to get his covenant people? And and Moses responds that I'm not eloquent, eloquent, like I'm not right now. I'm slow of speech. But God responds in Exodus 4, 11 through 12. He says, The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, therefore, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Or we can think about when God sent Joshua to the land of Canaan. 
And he said to him, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And for Samuel, he says, and David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord God was with him all the way to the great commission where Jesus says that he will be with us until the end of the age. God is continually with his people holding up our right hands so that we will not stumble in sin. He holds up our right hand so that we can, will continue to know more about who Christ is. He's holding us up so that we will stay on the path of obedient life. He's holding us up so that we will take joy in God and who he is and so that we will share that goodness with others. He's continually with us. And he's not just with us so that we can achieve his purposes. 1 Peter 5, 7 says that we should cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And Psalm 40 tells us that although we are poor and needy, the Lord takes thought of us. He's not good to us in terms of fancy cars or diamond rings, but he is good to us and how he cares for us and how he walks with us. And although that's true, that doesn't mean that we always feel that. As we go through this this life, that doesn't mean that we always realize this. Sometimes we may be angry with God, thinking, how can we say that he's with us after all that we've been through? He wasn't with us in the heartache and he isn't here now. And some might be mad at God for even the idea of this claim that he is continually with us. How can you say that after all that I've been through? And I don't relate to that. (laughs) I've been so blessed in my life but I don't need to walk in your shoes to understand that God is walking with you. If you need proof that God is continually with his people, you should know that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us to make us his own. He rose from the dead so that we could live lives with pure hearts. And even now, he's interceding for us. He's walking alongside this road with you, praying for you, even when you can't pray for yourself. He's experienced everything you're suffering through and more. He has cried for his dead loved ones. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be hungry and tired. And he did it all for your sake. And he's with us now through his spirit. I don't know much about suffering, but I know that God does. And God hears and he sees And I don't need to personally go through trials to tell you that God will be with you through all that you go through. He was with the psalmist and he will be with you. He doesn't just walk with us. He's good to us by guiding us with his counsel. And afterwards we follow him. And after we follow him, he'll receive us into glory. God is good because he gives us instructions for how we should 
walk through this life. Over the last couple months as I've been driving my car, I've been hearing this crazy screeching sound. And I'm not a car guy, so I started freaking out. And I found the car equivalent of WebMD. And, you know, every time I heard a sound, I'm like, okay, let me just Google that and just try to self-diagnose. And I'm like, all right. You should see me on the way to work. I'm just like, okay, axle's broken. Car's ruined. $6,000 out of pocket. All right, new sound. Engine's toast. I need to go home. I'm going to need to call Corey and say I can't come into work. But I quickly realized that after all that freaking out, in reality, I just needed new brake pads. And so <laughs> I quickly Googled that, and I was like, okay, how much is this going to cost? All right, $300 $400, not paying that. That's too much money. So then I was like, all right, am I capable of doing this? Can I replace my own brake pads? Okay, what's the best case scenario? All right, best case, I install them smoothly. I'm able to decelerate at an efficient time in a good manner and stop and everything will be, you know, hunky-dory. Worst case, I will still be able to decelerate, but it just might be a little more abrupt. And Stephanie is now on the widow's list. So, <laughs> I decided I'm not going to replace these, these myself. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm also not paying that money. So I did the next best thing and I called Thomas and I said, hey Thomas, help me replace my brakes. And Thomas was like, sure thing. And that was great. But in that moment, I was so happy that I had someone to guide me through it, that I didn't have to just suffer through, through it on my own. And that's how God is with us. He doesn't just leave us to our own devices. He has given us his word so that we may know how to live this life. It's a grace to have someone to turn to when you don't know what to do. And it's especially a grace to have someone to turn to who knows all things. And his guidance is not just one that is an, to an aimless place. No, we have a glorious destination. As opposed to the wicked who have a slippery slope, we have the promise of being received into glory. We have the promise of being with God for all time. God is with us now, and he always will be. So while this current life may not be easy, we know that we have a promise coming. We may not be prosperous now, but we will be prosperous in the end. For what do we have in heaven but God? What other gods will last? What false idols are worth serving? Money has no value in heaven's bank. Beauty fades surely as the seasons change and power will be nothing in light of the Almighty. Angels have no power over him. Satan himself is subordinate to him. There is nothing in all of the spiritual realm that is worth having except for God. And what do we have on earth? Our pride will be outshadowed. All of our muscle and strength will wither away. Our name will be forgotten. There's nothing on earth worth desiring except for God. You see, the reason we have these crises is because these types of crises is because we desire the wrong things. We have the almighty, all-loving God before us. We should not settle for lesser pleasures. Let us say with the psalmist that there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Again, this is easy to say, theoretically. And I wish that I could always say this 
with as much confidence as I say it from where I'm standing. I wish verse 25 was the cry of my life. But that's why I think the psalmist includes verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, our flesh will fail. We will go through trials. Our bodies will age. Diseases will come. Life is physically cursed by the fall. Our hearts will fail. We will be emotionally broken. We will, be ha- we will have anxiety and stress. We will have moments in this life where it's difficult to believe that God is good. Our hearts and our flesh will fail. But thanks be to God that he is the strength of our hearts that he is the author and perfecter of our faith, that he holds us in the palms of his hand, that he continually holds our right hand. He is our strength and he is ours forevermore. And that's how we prosper. Not by having shiny cars or big homes or nice dishes or fancy jewelry, not by having power or status, not by being known by many people, but by being known by God. And he knows us, and he is ours forevermore. Those who are far from him, they shall perish. And all who are unfaithful to him will be put to an end. But for the the psalmist, it's good for him to be near God. And instead of telling the world how God has failed to bless him, like he's tempted to do in verse 14, he can't wait to tell the world how blessed he actually is. You see, this crisis isn't really a crisis at all. It isn't really a problem when we realize that truly God is good to his people. It's just not always in the way that we think. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,